Well, good morning. You may be seated. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks to Brady and Diana for ushering us into worship. You are indeed a blessing. What a joy as well to watch as believers publicly identify with Jesus Christ through the ordinance of baptism. If you are a believer and have not been obedient in baptism, do not delay. I encourage you. If you were, if you confessed Christ, maybe at a school camp when you were young or something like that, and you were baptized perhaps as a child, but your life afterwards was not that of a growing Christian, that of a new creation, that there was no fruit or evidence of conversion, then odds are you just got wet at your baptism. So again, we are called to be in joyful obedience to baptism. Only one need hear the testimony of our dear sister Caroline this morning to see that. But speaking of water, how about fire? Did you know, saints, that we have a part of our body that is on fire? Better yet, did you know that we have a part of our body that is, in fact, set on fire by hell itself? Did you know that there's a part of our body that defiles the rest of our body? Did you know that we have a part of our body that Scripture calls a restless evil that's full of deadly poison? That it is on fire as we speak. Well, many of you know what this burning cauldron is. James tells us it is none other than the tongue. It's the tiny rudder that drives the ship of our life, constantly trying to drive us toward the rocky shoals. Thus, we are given great warning. Scripture warns us to treat our tongue like a loaded gun that has a hair trigger. If you remove it from the holster, it needs to be intentional with great thought and with great care. It's a fiery member that can kill. It can maim and destroy. The loaded gun is probably the best analogy that can be used today. Had there been firearms in James's day, I think he may well have opted for that. When we have a firearm, it's not left to sit out without watchful care, is it? Whether in a safe or in a holster. So what about our tongue? Well, the great Puritan writer Thomas Watson writes, quote, God has set a double fence before the tongue, the teeth and the lips to teach us to be wary that we offend not with our tongue. Close quote. We keep it under lock and key. And indeed, our, we are born with our tongue already placed under lock and key. Think of your teeth as bars to a prison cell. And inside that prison cell is a prisoner that is set on fire by hell itself. How cautious might we be when we let it out? That's the restraint Scripture wants to paint for us. The problem with this prisoner, though, is that he's entitled to be let out daily for his time in the yard. Meaning, we must be able to speak to function in life. So what now? What exhortation are we given? What tools are we given to make sure that this hellfire prisoner that we have to let out of its cage doesn't hurt ourselves or anyone else around us? Well, we could certainly preach an entire series on the tongue as we see over 138 verses dealing with the tongue and all that Scripture exhorts us concerning control of the tongue. David writes in the 39th Psalm, quote, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle. The theme is the same. The caution and the warning is the same, that this thing is dangerous. But aside from the normal disciplines and the fruit of the spirit and self-control, how about just a few takeaways, a few arrows to put into our quiver that we might not always consider 
in the realm of controlling that hellish prisoner that we have to let out at least every day. Well, during the 1600s, a poetic Puritan writer named Jeremy Taylor, he was known as the Shakespeare of the divines. He served during the time of Oliver Cromwell in the Church of England. He had a way of writing that set him apart from many of the Puritan writers of his day. And he wrote on the tongue extensively in the Christian's use of the tongue, giving insight into keeping us safe. And one line that captured my attention and rang true with the counsel of Scripture, Taylor writes, quote, Great knowledge, if it be without vanity, is the most severe bridle of the tongue. Let me read that again. Great knowledge, if it be without vanity, is the most severe bridle of the tongue. What does that mean? Well, put simply, it means the more you know, the quieter you become. The wiser you become, the less you actually have to say in everyday life. Have you noticed that? Some of the wisest people I know are very slow to speak. They tend to speak with great caution. The more they grow in knowledge, the quieter they become. Why is that? What's behind that? What type of knowledge growth is the divine writing of here? Well, he's speaking of one's knowledge of Scripture. He's speaking of great knowledge of the things of God. So the first truth this individual encounter tells them in Proverbs ten nineteen that where words are many, sin abounds. That he who restrains his lips is wise. What else grows as you grow in knowledge of the word? What is going on? What, what is going to grow as you see yourself in the light of God's word and of God's standard? Humility will grow. Not only does God become bigger in our sight, making ourselves smaller, but as we grow in knowledge and wisdom, we see the depths that we were saved from. We see the depravity that we came to the cross with. We saw the only part of our salvation that we contributed to, as Jonathan Edwards said, was the sin that made it necessary. That's what's growing in knowledge. That's what growing in knowledge will show us. And this knowledge breeds greater and greater humility and slowly begins to lock up the frivolous letting out of that hellish prisoner from its cell. Great knowledge, if it be without vanity, is the most severe bridle of the tongue. If you're growing in the right knowledge, the right kind of knowledge, it will lead you to wield your words with careful, thoughtful precision. Those who are growing in the right kind of knowledge are doing so because they've seen themselves rightly as fallen and depraved. Jesus becomes big and we become small. And humility, as C.S. Lewis once said, is, quote, not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And that's easier to do. When God is seen as he should be seen, when we see ourselves as we actually are and as we were before Christ saved a wretch like me. That will make a man or a woman slow to speak. That knowledge bridles the tongue. Give great care when you must let out that hellish prisoner out of its cage. He wants to attack you and he wants to attack everyone around you. Consider the wisdom of a police officer to draw his weapon. Does he unholster it at the first sign of trouble? No. Does he brandish his weapon even in some severe circumstances? Many times, no. They are slow to draw. And if they do draw, they mean to be methodical and intentional with its usage. And I'm sure the good officer even looks forward to being able to reholster that firearm and not to take it out. And so it is. 
Hear the words of Scripture about that tiny member that is set on fire. Grow in knowledge. And the more we know, the slower we are to speak. Amen? Well, if you can't say amen, say ouch. All right. Well, in the last installment of our series, we concluded part two of Jesus commissioning and sending out his 12 disciples for the first time. And they had been mentored and trained for over a year. They had been empowered by Jesus himself to not only cast out the demonic, but to heal all manner of sickness as well for the purpose of authenticating the message they were bringing. And Mark goes out of his way to give us that very simple message that the disciples took with them in verse 12. And they went out and preached that men should repent. Jesus preached the same message. Stop walking the direction you've been walking. Turn around and walk the other direction toward me in repentance and faith. That was the simple message that the 12 disciples were sent out. To the surrounding towns and villages, they were to take this simple message to the people. But Jesus and his disciples were not the first ones we encountered in our journey through Mark who gave this simple message. Who else rang out this very simple sermon? Well, as we open the very beginning of Mark, who else stood as a voice crying in the wilderness saying, repent, repent and make straight the way of the Lord. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Of course, this was the forerunner, none other than John the Baptist. And in truth, the last of the Old Testament prophets. And what do we know about Jerusalem and how she treats her prophets? Oh, Jerusalem, Jesus said, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing all the way back to the lamenting of Jeremiah and of Elijah, Jerusalem has killed those who were sent to call them to righteousness. They stoned and tore apart those who would dare show them their sin. But they became disobedient and rebelled against you, Nehemiah writes, and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who admonished them so that they might return to you and they committed great blasphemies. There's nothing new under the sun. The moment before Stephen was stoned in Acts 7, the second to last sentence Stephen utters that causes them to rage against Stephen, he declares, and which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, who betray whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Now, of course, all prophets were ultimately pointing toward a coming Messiah. But who might Stephen have had in mind as one announcing the coming of the righteous one? Indeed, it was the voice. It was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That was the voice, the final Old Testament prophet sent to prepare the way, sent to point Israel to Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in our coming weeks, 
the voice in the wilderness will be met with great violence. This will be part one of our two to three part series titled by the same. Recall, we began our journey through Mark with chapter one, opening like a movie scene at the bank of the Jordan with a very crazed looking man wearing camel's hair, wearing a leather belt, eating locusts and wild honey. The one of whom Jesus said, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And over the next few weeks, we're going to watch once again what Jerusalem does to her prophets. We're going to witness nothing short of the execution of the greatest man ever born after Jesus. And we don't typically think of John the Baptist that way, do we? And yet, here it is. So with that, let's begin with our text. Mark six fourteen through 18. Mark six fourteen through 18. And King Herod heard it. For his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying he is Elijah. And others were saying he's a prophet. Like the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married, had married her. Excuse me. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for faithful servants like John. In an age that shares hostility for your truth, we have much to learn from this final chapter of John the Baptist's life. Teach us what you would have us to know, Holy Spirit. We ask that you would impress upon us the truths that are contained herein. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, normally we open our... Uh, sermon with a little bit of a short story to launch us, but we have so much ground to cover this morning that we're just going to jump right in. So I hope your expository ears are oiled and ready to go. So beginning with verse 14, let's look at one of our main players straight away. Verse 14, and King Herod heard it. Stop there. Who exactly are we talking about here? Well, we need some historical context if we're to grasp the full implications of this man. Now, many know the name Herod, but in truth, it can often be confusing because there were quite a few Herods in Scripture, weren't there? The one most popular that we think of is Herod the Great. This was the one who pursued the baby Jesus to have him killed in Bethlehem, for example. Herod the Great was a cruel man, even killing two of his own sons. But one of the sons who survived his father's rage and lived to inherit power and territory to include the area of Galilee was Herod Antipas. That's who we see pictured here in our text today. But at the beginning of our text, he was referred to as a king, as King Herod. And in truth, Herod was not a king at all. He was a tetrarch, means he was a ruler. He ruled over a given province at the pleasure of Rome. And he had no authority outside of those jurisdictions. But within them, he held almost complete power. The power of execution, the power of, to wield the military might, at his disposal, all were his. Yet as we look at Herod the Great, his father, we see two 
famous maxims come into focus. We've all heard the term, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, or like father, like son. And indeed, the, the son here, Herod Antipas, shared every one, every bit of his father's wickedness. Now, as we'll see in our tragic scene over the next two weeks, Herod possessed and he accentuated nearly every major character flaw a person could have. He was a schemer. He was power hungry. He was a sexual deviant. Yet despite that, we'll see later on that Herod would be more perceptive of who John was than the supposedly pious and religious around him. That's fascinating. Continuing on in verse 14, what does King Herod hear? It says he heard it. Well, first question, what's the it that he heard? Well, it says for his name had become well known. Well, drawing from our two-part series we just completed of Jesus commissioning and sending out his 12 disciples into all the towns and villages, it appears we have very good news. The disciples were doing their jobs. Jesus' name was becoming well known. This is a testimony of the work of the disciples. They were spreading his word. They were preaching repentance and they were backing up their claims with healings and power over the demonic. They were making the name of Jesus famous. And isn't that our job? Isn't that our job? Jesus name has become well known. And Herod Antipas heard of it. He is hearing of this Jesus Now, notice it does not say that Herod was hearing of the disciples. He is hearing of this Jesus, meaning the disciples were on message. Now, Herod lives in Tiberias. He lives in Tiberias, meaning at any given time, Herod could have left his palace and he could have walked to Capernaum in a day. He was close. He ruled over Galilee. And Jesus is a number of years into his ministry at this point, all taking place right under the nose of Herod Antipas in his district, making more of a fuss than anyone else in history in his district. Yet it appears from the way that Mark is writing here, this is the first time that Herod has taken any interest in this man from Galilee. Why is that? The answer from a number of commentators was remarkably simple. He was lazy. He was consumed with his own lusts and just heaping enjoyment upon himself. He didn't care about watching or managing his province except when it might directly affect him. That's the king kind of man we are seeing in Herod. Well, back to our text. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Well, I've never been much of a moviegoer, but I know when someone spoils a plot line. This verse should have come with a spoiler alert warning. Now, you might have noticed that this story doesn't flow in a straight line. They give the ending, then they go back and they tell you how they got to the ending. You ever seen a movie like that where they show the end result and they spend the rest of the movie showing you how they got to that opening scene? That's what we have here. It's a bit of a flashback. Well, first question, it says that people were saying. So who exactly are these people? And secondly, what are they saying? Well, we don't know who these people are, but we do know who they are not. Herod's palace was in Tiberias, as we mentioned. No Jew would go to Tiberias. They certainly would not go to Herod's palace. They literally built this place on top of a burial ground. 
So pardon the pun, but no Jew would be caught dead there. So we can say from that Herod is not hearing these things from Jews, devout or otherwise. These are Gentiles. These would be pagan Gentiles, likely. Well, Lanesville 2021, why do you care about that? Listen to their language. John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Are these religious words? Oh, yeah. Someone being raised from the dead? Miraculous powers? Very religious. The takeaway is this. There's not a non-religious person on the entire planet. These are pagan Gentiles. There's no Jew in Tiberias. Every person we know, every person you know, is a worshiper. The staunchest professed atheist is a worshiper. The family member who wants nothing to do with church, they are a devout worshiper. We're all religious people with something occupying the throne of our heart. And we worship whatever that is. Every person, no exception. It may be self-worship. It may be money. Maybe safety is their God. Pick your poison. We were created. We were hardwired for worship. And every single person we know dutifully prepares their sanctuary and bows down every day. Now we pray that it is Jesus who occupies the throne of that heart. But make no mistake, we all worship. We are all religious, even like the pagans giving the report to Herod Antipas. Never say of a person, well, they're just not very religious. Oh, yes, they are. Oh, yes, they are. One of your jobs as a believer is to find out what they're worshiping. What are they worshiping? What their false Messiah is and give the gospel. And guess what? It's like shooting a fish in a barrel. You know why? Because that false Messiah they're worshiping keeps letting them down. Constantly letting them down. That's the primary reason this world is such an angry place. People's false messiahs that promise satisfaction, that promised happiness, all find without fail that they can deliver neither. And they're angry. They're angry. Scripture has the answer. Repentance and faith. In Jesus Christ. But please take this away. Every person on planet Earth is deeply religious. Everyone. What it is they are worshiping. Unless it's Jesus Christ, they're headed for disappointment. That idol will fall. It will fail as well. The false Messiah will fail, guaranteed. But we have one that has never failed. This Christian can stand and speak with every confidence that my Messiah has never failed me. Back to our text. What we know from the spoiler is that John the Baptist is dead. And the people around him begin to speculate and try to explain what or who is allowing this Jesus fellow to do these amazing things. It's John the Baptist risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. What are some other speculations? Verse 15. But others were saying he is Elijah. And others were saying he is a prophet like the prophets of old. We need to explain this Jesus and what he's doing. And like every heart that is hardened by sin, that's calloused by unbelief, the response to the work of Christ will be one of two things. One, we get him completely wrong. He's John the Baptist, raised from the dead. He's Elijah. He's a prophet. 
which accomplishes the second response, reducing or eliminating the deity of Christ. If he's John the Baptist come back from the dead, he's not Messiah. If he's Elijah, he's not the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If he's merely a prophet of old, he's not the Alpha and the Omega. What is clear is that the people in this verse have a very high opinion of Jesus, though, and what he's doing, don't they? They are in amazement at this Jesus. Is that faith? Not at all. The truth is most people in the world have a relatively high opinion of Jesus. What opinion do the devils even hold of Jesus? You're the Christ, the son of the living God, they screamed. That's quite an endorsement. Not one that Jesus wanted, of course. That's one reason why he told them to be silent. But we see that a high opinion of Jesus is not saving faith. Now, one of the most ironic aspects of the people speculating that Jesus was Elijah in verse 15 was that the one that they beheaded actually did come in the spirit of Elijah and they rejected him. They were looking for Elijah, yet in a very real sense, if we look at Matthew 17, 12, no need to turn there. But I say to you that Elijah has already come and they did not know him, but they did to him whatever they wished John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah Luke 1 17 and they killed him so the irony is not lost that they are looking for Elijah and even calling Jesus Elijah he came already and you killed him much more to be said on the topic of John the Baptist and his relationship to Elijah but no time today for another day but one question floating on the top of the text here briefly is why are they associating Jesus' miracles with John the Baptist? Think about that. Did John the Baptist perform any miracles? No. None that we know of. So why would they equate the two? Very simply, John had been executed. His death gave him connection to the unseen. They equated this with the ability to perform miracles. Again, superstition. But this is what they believed. It's no different today if you think about it. Death, ghosts, etc. All equal supernatural powers, right? But here, moving to verse 16. Verse 16, we see a huge reveal. But when Herod heard it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Behold the power of a guilty conscience. Remember when Jesus was finally brought to Herod during his mock trial? And Herod had long, long been trying to meet Jesus. Why? What was Herod's inner heart for wanting to see Jesus? Well, it's revealed here in verse 16. Is it John the Baptist? He, has he come back for his revenge? Has he come back to haunt me? Or even worse, I need to see his face. I need to look into his eyes. Is this the man I beheaded? And this term in our text, verse 16, says, He kept saying... He kept saying, and that's in what's called the imperfect tense, meaning it was a constant plaguing in Herod's mind. He was mulling it over, mumbling and mumbling and chewing it, consumed with fear. As we will see, Herod knew. He knew that what he did to John was wrong and his conscience plagued him. And when you do not know Christ, there is no relief to a guilty conscience. There's nowhere for it to flee to. It must be masked or covered. Drugs, alcohol, pornography, worldly entertainment. 
for simply steal your peace and steal your sleep. There's no cure for the guilty conscience outside of Christ. And so Herod's, Herod's statement betrays the fear he's been living in. He's tormented by what he had done. But lest we almost feel kind of bad for Herod here, his torment needs qualified, needs to be qualified. Was this a torment of regret? Was this some kind of contrition? Oh, not in the least. He was tormented that this person posed a threat to his power. You worry about losing that which you love most. And Herod loved his power. John the Baptist was very admired amongst the people. He had many disciples and he would have the sway of many. Now take that person in Herod's mind, add to him supernatural power, and I'm the one who had him killed. My kingdom is threatened. That's what Herod feared. He was a lover of self. And a risen John the Baptist posed a great threat to self. But we aren't left to speculate about any of this. We're about to get a front row seat to a story that the most scandalous soap opera could not come up with. This is downright sinister. We're going to see adultery. We're going to see incest. We're going to see multiple plot lines going on. And finally, murder. Beat that, Hollywood. All right, let's dive into the drama here. Verse 17. Verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. Lots to unpack here. A few things to note. One, it says Herod himself. What does that mean? It means that this was not a run-of-the-mill governmental order for disturbing the peace. Herod himself means he did it himself. This is intensely personal for him. Dr. John MacArthur writes, quote, His anger toward the wilderness prophet was not merely motivated by political unrest, popular demand, or Roman decree. It stemmed from a deep-seated vendetta. Close quote. The message John preached does not win friends and influence people. It gets you beheaded. It gets you put up on a Roman cross. Herod had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison. Why? Well, here's where it gets thick. Herod had gone after John, had him arrested on account of or because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. Well, first off, who is Herodias? Well, she was the daughter of Herod's half-brother, making her Herod's niece. But don't stop there. She was also married to another one of Herod's half-brothers at the time. But don't stop there. Herod himself was already married to the daughter of the king, Eratos. So Herod seduced his own niece to leave his half-brother. He puts his own wife, the daughter of King Eratos, in the doghouse with an unlawful divorce, which, by the way... Side note, sends King Eratos into a rage for jilting his daughter. I think any father in here could identify with that. He sends a legion to destroy Herod. But for a Roman army detachment standing in his way, he would have killed Herod. You thought your family holidays were awkward. All right. Sin brings chaos. Sin brings chaos. God is a God of order, not of chaos. Back to our text. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested 
and bound in prison on account of Herodias. Some translations say as a favor to Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. Well, we know from the backstory here that Herodias was not only an ambitious and driven woman, but that also she was a political animal. She was a schemer. It's not a stretch here to say that Herod was bad, but Herodias in her own way was far worse. Herodias will soon take center stage as the primary provocateur of our scene. The woman was wicked. But what exactly has Herodias so worked up? Well, verse 17 just might be a clue. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Yikes. Well, second only perhaps to Jezebel in the Old Testament, we see in living color the old adage that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. But there are two levels we need to see here. This verse tells us of John the Baptist's direct confrontation of their sin to their faces. Yet it says Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison. Well, this tells us a few things. One, John the Baptist was likely openly preaching against this incestuous and adulterous affair with Herodias, the new mistress of Tiberias. John was never subtle. He was likely openly rebuking this union. Word gets around fast. Worse than a Baptist church. Trust me. So the sequence shows John being brought, bound to the palace in Tiberias, brought before Herod. So we're left to presume whether or not Herodias was there for that. I would think since she was gunning for them that she likely was there provoking this situation. How does John respond to being brought before a ruler? that could, with his left pinky, have him killed. He says it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Was this just a one-off rebuke to his face? Not hardly. Look at the first part of verse 17. It says, for John had been saying. Guess what tense this is in? It's in the imperfect tense again. Meaning what? Meaning John was constantly, he was continually saying this. Everybody's favorite guy at the party, right? Telling us that my life is in sin. That's John the Baptist. Second to Jesus, the greatest man ever born. Greater than Moses, better than Abraham, better than Paul. He railed on the sin of Herod and Herodias. Continually, in public, brought in shackled. The message doesn't change. The imperfect tense tells us that he was even in prison saying this. Hey, John, I'm going up to see Herod today. Any message from your cell? Yeah, tell him he's in sin. Right. John's preaching did not change from rebuking the religious elite when he called them broods of vipers to his final charge that would cost him his life. Now, we have to glean this from the text, but John was kept in prison there at Herod's palace for about a year. That's a long time when you've made this kind of splash. When you openly slam the ruler of your region in continual open fashion, guess what? You don't live for a year. Meaning someone was trying to protect him. And we know from our later text, that was Herod. Herod was a man truly conflicted. He could not let John go free lest he suffer the wrath of Herodias. And yet he couldn't bring himself to kill him. 
This man was a tortured soul. He was weak. He was a vacillator. John, on the other hand, was bold as a lion. He spoke the truth without compromise. Paul wrote the Galatians, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. John was no man pleaser. He feared no man. He feared God. But I will show, Jesus says in Luke 12, 5, you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. The worst a man can do to you is take your body. Jesus casts aside that as utterly insignificant in light of eternity. John the Baptist's gaze was fixed on eternity. He had come to make straight the way of the Lord. The voice in the wilderness did not cease to cry out simply because it had been forced into a dark dungeon. The voice cried out still. John was fearless. He stood for righteousness. There's a saying that if you don't wake up and butt heads with the devil, it's because you're headed in the same direction. The Christian life is that of a joyful warrior. We love the joyful part, but we tend to skip the warrior part. But why not pick up a sword where the battle of the out where the outcome of the battle is already assured. And how do you do that? How do you pick up a sword and shield? How do you dress in the armor of Ephesians 6? Contend vigorously for the faith. Live lives that have one aim, to please the one that saved you. Be bold. Do not fear men. Read and know your word like your life depends on it, because it does. Love God's people. Be with them every chance you have. Be a person of prayer. These are the simple weapons of our warfare. Now, life lived like this has no guarantees of comfort. The second greatest man ever born was only found worthy of an executioner's blade in this world. This world is not our home or our reward. So fight well this week. Joyful warriors like John the Baptist. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see today yet another man that the world was not worthy of. Lord, that was found only to be worthy of an executioner's blade. Lord, as we begin to dive deeper into this story, we will see the boldness of John. Boldness, Lord, that you desire that we have. Lord, the weapons that you've given us for our Christian walk are simple. We ask that you would help us to be faithful in those this week. Keep us until we meet again in Jesus' name. Amen.